Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Last week, Catherine Stewart, the author of The Power Worshippers, Inside the Rise of Religious Nationalism, came on the show to explain how the fundamentalist right were dealing with the pandemic, trying to take advantage of it. Today, I have another expert on the radical right in America, Anne Nelson. She wrote last year's acclaimed book on the political right, Shadow Network, Media Money, and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right. Um, And very briefly, before we get to 2020, what exactly is the Shadow Network? The Shadow Network, uh, as, as I describe in a fair amount of detail in my book, is a, a group of different interests. Some of them are right-wing fundamentalists with extremely conservative social policies. Some of them are economic interests uh, based uh, among billionaires from the extractive and the oil industries and, and others. And then political operatives associated with the far right of the Republican Party. And for the last 40 years, they've had a network that has allowed them to work together and coordinate their activities between the the big-time donor activity, the media activity on their own media platforms, the political operations that get out the vote, especially in swing states, and has made them surprisingly effective over these years, culminating with the, the Trump administration. And is there an equivalent on the left, or is this unique to the right, this shadow network, this alliance of big money, media, and, 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 and business? No, there is no equivalent on the left. There is no equivalent among the Democrats. And I have to say that, that, that really one of their early targets was the traditional Republican Party. This is from the far right of the Republican Party. And they, they really figured out how to take over the Republican Party and purge it of moderates until you get the party that you have today. Is there an individual who symbolizes this more than any other, looking through your book and all the the traditional characters that people associate with the radical right in America pop up, um, including Kellyanne Conway and the Koch brothers? Is there someone in particular who captures the spirit of, 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 the, of this shadow network? I, I think if I were going to choose one one figure, it would be Richard DeVos, uh, who founded the Amway Company, which is is uh, multi, called multi level marketing. Um, it's been accused of of being a pyramid corporation uh, by by some. And Richard DeVos was from a very very conservative Dutch Reformed Calvinist sect in Michigan. Uh, where you have a lot of values that are homophobic, Islamophobic, uh, etc. Uh, his his business operations were unsavory and sometimes not 
quite legal under a federal prosecution and and investigation on several counts. Um, and and there's a kind of family based and faith based war against the public sector in his family and his world that has taken the shape of a war against public school teachers and public education, epitomized by his daughter-in-law, Betsy DeVos, our current secretary of education, who has been trying to undermine public schools in every way possible. So he has given a huge amount of money to the Council for National Policy, which he was president of, and this is the umbrella organization that, that captures a lot of the activity in my book. But he's also been a huge donor to Focus on the Family, which has used psychological information to capture this fundamentalist audience. Uh, the Family Research Council, which is a lobbying organization based on these values. And so Richard DeVos has just played this outsized role, not only in Michigan politics, but as a kind of shadow figure on the national stage. Guys like DeVos, of course successes they're not frauds like our president what do you think they they think of trump these figures in your shadow network do they take him seriously or do they view him as the ideal uh idiot to essentially uh distribute their ideas i think that the relationship between the leadership of the council for national policy and donald trump is is as purely transactional as you're going to get in politics. There was a deal cut uh, in, in fairly stark terms in 2016, in June, 20, in June, where the conservatives from the fundamentalists and these business interests came to Trump and said, you don't have any campaign organization. You don't have a war chest. You don't have people on the ground. We've got all of those. We've got, we've got, you know, campaign in a box. What we want from you is the right to nominate your federal judges. We want our guy, Mike Pence, as your running mate. We want to write the, the social platforms for the Republican National Convention. And the deal was struck and both sides have honored them. So I, I think it's the ultimate quid pro quo. So, Anne, we're in January 2020. Uh, let, let's go back a few months. Everything seems to be quite normal. The radical right is, as always, focused on gun rights, abortion, implicit or explicit racism, and the rest of their baggage. And then the pandemic hits. How has uh, the coronavirus change the thinking and the agenda of your, it's not yours, of course, but you're an expert in it, of your shadow network? Well, first of all, I think one of the ways that this organization has been effective it has been in networking the, the money behind the political campaigns with canvassing organizations like the National Rifle Association and the Susan B. Anthony Anti-Abortion Organization both of which are run by members of the Council for National Policy, and looping these into the data platform developed by the Koch brothers and a battery of apps. So these were, I believe, quite effective in 2016, very helpful to Trump, especially in the swing states that won the Electoral College for him. And these were also states where the Democrats were behind, they didn't focus on them, 
they had nothing like any kind of competitive presence in terms of their use of apps tied into political canvassing. So all of this was was kind of constructed and it advanced through the midterms. And Brad Pascal, Trump's campaign manager, had a new generation of apps that were going to work with geofencing. This is where you find out whose cell phones are in your vicinity, say at a campaign rally. And you get them to download the app and provide their personal information, including their email addresses and their phone numbers. And then you capture them on your app and you combine it with your data. Then you download their phone directories. And all of a sudden, you've just got this whole profusion of information that can be used for canvassing, for fundraising, for organizing volunteers. So all of this was ready to go. And it was built up around the idea of Trump's rallies. That's his strong point. He goes, he revs up the crowd, and he gets everybody you know, excited and downloading the apps. Well, along comes coronavirus, and the rallies go away. And you could hear Trump struggling with this over the last few months, saying, uh, we need to open it up by, by Easter so everybody can go into the churches. And of course, the churches, the fundamentalist churches who are part of this, this movement, have their own battery of pro-Trump apps that are part of this operation. So of course he wants people in the churches. Of course he wants them back in the rallies. And even now, even even yesterday, he's saying, well, maybe we can hold the convention and open the rallies if we give everyone face masks. The public health experts are saying, uh, this is not a good idea. This will kill people. Uh, but you have this, this drive First of all, to have these mass events, which the entire campaign was built around and was being activated in its early stages in December. Second of all, the card that Trump was planning to play going into November was a strong economy, and it's not looking that way. So this whole idea of getting people back to work and the economy reopened has been front and center, not only with Trump, but with the Council for National Policies affiliates who've been pushing this on their media fronts, on their policy fronts, reopen, 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 and really disregarding the cost in human lives uh, to to my horror. <laughs> well, not just to your horror, but to, I think, a lot of people's disbelief. There's a, there's a 1984 element here. We Whatever one thinks of the religious right, um, I guess some of us at least would respect their commitment to the right to life and, and, and that being the thinking behind their opposition to abortion. So what I don't understand is how they can go from this strong uh, opposition to abortion to the back-to-work ideology during the pandemic which is essentially saying, well, we're willing to sacrifice some people's lives for a good economy. Was there a debate in your mind within the shadow network, the DeVosses, the Cox, the, the, the Kellyanne Conways? Were they actually, well, are they arguing about the relative value of life versus economic prosperity? Well, my own attitude is that a lot of the evangelical members of this population have have been lied to and manipulated uh you know they 
and, and I should add that I, I grew up in Oklahoma and Nebraska. Uh, so, so these are all, you know, very familiar, uh, religious denominations to me. And I've, I've really taken a deep dive in my research into the media that's being shoved at them. And I have to say that, that a lot of the book's research involves the death of traditional journalism and professional journalism. Uh, when I was growing up in the, in, in Oklahoma in the sixties and seventies, you read the newspaper, the hometown newspaper, you read the news magazines, you watched CBS News, and you basically had a template of facts to work from. These newspapers have been dying off in record numbers. They've been laying off reporters and going down to an absolute skeletal staff. So that creates a vacuum, and that vacuum has been filled by fundamentalist radio stations and by fundamentalist television operations and right-wing operations. Uh, one of the new-ish kids on the block is One American News. It goes by OAN or OANN for One American News Network. And if you took Fox News and tilted it another 40 degrees to the right and added in a bunch of bizarre conspiracy theories, that's what you would get with OAN. And Trump has, has been favoring it increasingly. It has a permanent spot in the White House press gallery. And it is part of a constellation of these news, well, they call themselves news outlets. I do not call them news outlets. I call them disinformation platforms. And one of their big, so, so it's all coordinated campaigns. You'll have exactly the same message repeated across these broadcasting platforms and their online outlets that are affiliates. Right now, the line that's being perpetrated is that the numbers on the coronavirus are wildly inflated, that there's a conspiracy that involves Dr. Fauci, Bill Gates, and George Soros to delude the American public to think that the coronavirus exists and it's a problem. Therefore, why not reopen the economy and jumpstart the economy? Because the whole idea of the coronavirus is, is a leftist conspiracy. And uh, it, it, you just imagine what an incredible danger this thinking presents to public health. But you have audiences of tens of millions and more who are surrounded by this information that motivates them to go out and protest and believe that they're safe doing so. And it's gone from being very uh, disturbing to being really alarming. We talked last week also to a, a doctor on the front lines in New York City who argued that Donald Trump had blood on his hands when it comes to the pandemic. Are you suggesting then that this whole shadow network has blood on its hands in its propagandistic attempt to convince people that the pandemic is not as bad as some people suggest, indeed even politicizing the pandemic and suggesting that the um, the scientific left, if you like, is behind it and trying to undermine Trump's successful economy? I think there's this whole value system that, first of all, says that their ideology should be dominant over anything based on knowledge or science or fact. So 
anybody that tries to report in terms of professional journalism, academic science, informed social policy is discredited by them. The other thing that they present is the idea that the economy takes precedence over human life and and quality of life. And they sell this through through really very sophisticated but but also fairly standard political techniques. So yeah, everybody does focus groups, everybody does does political polling. They come out the other end and decide how to sell ideas to a public that is directly detrimental to them. So when Trump discredited science and government regulatory agencies and everything that existed to protect the public, going back to the beginning of his administration, you add all of that together. And as of today, 80,000 lives have been lost in the United States to COVID-19. The vast majority of those lives didn't have to be lost. And so that's what you get when you have a war against valid information. Are you suggesting that the shadow network has essentially taken over the Republican Party? I think that it includes organizations that have taken over the Republican Party. The CNP is not an operational organization. It's a coordinating body. So I think that that once you get the donors and the media outlets and the political operatives together, they create plans and then go off and execute them. And the book lays out case studies such as the the very uh, calculated campaign to defeat Claire McCaskill in Missouri in the midterms and describes where the money came in, where the ads were bought, where the NRA and the Susan B. Anthony list implemented them doing door-to-door canvassing. And the thing that a lot of Democrats don't fully realize is a lot of American campaigns are won or lost on a very, very narrow margin. And if you can reach targeted voter populations and find messaging that is directed to their vulnerable spots, you can engage voters, you can get out the vote, you can tilt votes enough to swing an election. And the the classic example is 2016, when Trump lost the popular vote by 3 million He won the Electoral College by less than 80,000 votes in three states, less than 1% in each one. Very briefly, Anne, you're really depressing me here. Um, I'm sorry. (laughs) Well, it's not your fault. I'm not blaming you for the shadow network. If I I could, then maybe we could solve it. Um, But how how, how do these people get defeated? Because I think the vast majority of the people listening to this show are not great fans of Donald Trump and certainly of this radical right shadow network, this group of, of racists and, 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 and other, uh, other very uh, unseemly uh, political figures. Um, what, what does Joe Biden and his campaign need to do to defeat the shadow network in 2020? Well, first of all, I think that, that Biden... Uh, is a choice that will serve the Democrats well, because he is more appealing in swing states than some of his rivals were. Uh, that said, the Democrats will need to focus very quickly and very energetically on the swing states and which divisions of voters are actually persuadable in the swing states. 
Um, and really, we're only talking about a half a dozen states that are going to determine the outcome. So in the north, it's Mis Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. In the south, it's North Carolina, Florida, and Arizona. Maybe that'll swap out one or two states here or there. But those are the states that are really going to determine the outcome. And as somebody who believes profoundly in, in social justice, I, I absolutely support the attention and the need to address minority populations. But in order to win the election and do justice to minority populations, you have to appeal to the people who actually get out and vote. Now, as it happens, especially in these states, it turns out to be older, centrist white people. Uh, and until you have a shift in our political culture, which is not going to happen by November, that's where the game is played. And so, you know, one of the architects of the Council for National Policy, Paul Weyrich, uh, you know, would say, you know, you, you, you don't have to be right. You just have to win and then you can do whatever you want to. They've been playing by those rules for 40 years and it served them very well. I'm not saying that Democrats should, should stoop to the gutter, but I think that they need to really look at strategy and tactics in a sophisticated way. Uh, now, Trump has just released two major sets of apps. One has been his, his campaign app. One of them is the Trump News app, which tries to create a parallel information system to prevent Trump voters from going to professional journalism sources and even to prevent them from going to social media like Facebook and Twitter that might take down disinformation posts. So I just feel that people need to inform themselves about how this operation works and then take preventive action to defend the foundations of democracy. And finally, Anne, uh, uh, we're all stuck inside during the pandemic, including you in New York City. Um, a book or two that people might read to perhaps prepare them or arm them for this all-important election or, 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 or get them to think about the problems and challenges of your shadow network? Yeah. Well, as you may know, my previous two books were about anti-Nazi resistance movements in Germany and in occupied Paris. So I've had this lifelong fascination about how people resist authoritarian governments and dictatorships. That got me into thinking a lot about occupied France, uh, which <laughs> required many research trips to Paris, I'm afraid. But, oh, dear. Yeah, I know. Uh, but I followed up on some books that really made a, a strong impression recently. I love biographies. One of them was a joint biography of Simone de Beauvoir and Jean-Paul Sartre called A Dangerous Liaison by Carol Seymour Jones. And it really is not very flattering because it, it portrays both de Beauvoir and Sartre as faux resistance members who joined at the last minute when they could maximize the glory. And it's a very juicy read. And I followed that with another biography called Camus, A Life by Olivier Todd. And it put Camus' writings in the context of his life growing up in, in North Africa 
and then becoming an actual and important member of the French resistance, where his role was to edit a resistance newspaper and help break through Nazi censorship in occupied France. And so rather than just dwelling on the book, The Plague, uh, like many others, it's a way of really thinking about how writers and intellectuals, but also citizens, can make a choice to take action against these forces when most of the people around you may be passive. And I came out of it with such a, a strong appreciation for Camus and and his life as well as his work. Yeah, you kind of broke the rules, Anne. I told you you weren't allowed to mention the plague, but you cleverly got around that to That's recommend. <laughs> yeah, to recommend a biography, which I think is very, very smart. And actually, uh, I need to read that book too, because one of the things that's always astonished me about Camus is that he died, what, when he was 35 years old? He'd already written The Plague and The Stranger and a number of other classics. So, remarkable man and remarkable times. Absolutely. And, and really an inspiration. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.